Nine summers ago, I went for a visit to see if the moon was green cheese. When we arrived, people on earth asked, is it? We answered, no cheese, no bees, no trees. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Oh yeah, baby, Armstrong. Oh, I think we were in sync for the first time ever. Yeah, I liked it. Neil Armstrong. Neil Armstrong wrote a little children's poem. Oh yeah. Called My Vacation. And that was the first verse. That is beautiful. Do you want to hear the second verse? Yes, please. There were rocks and hills and a remarkable view of the beautiful earth that you know. It's a nice place to visit, and I'm certain that you will enjoy it when you get to go. <laughs> it's lovely. Uh, I think he, I think he was better at walking on the moon, but that's very nice. Yeah, I mean, he's. I don't think he was giving Wordsworth a, a run for his money. But he doesn't need to, because surely yeah. he's the biggest legend ever. Ever. That's it. You know? Job done. You do realise, Jamie, that this week, between now and the next podcast, we're going to see the 50th anniversary of the launch of Apollo 11. All hail. July the 16th, 1969. But we'll we'll do a proper rundown on that next week. We absolutely will. Because, of course, it will, will be the moon landing week. It's got to be done. So what about on this day? Oh, I've got an interesting one, Jamie. Got Go an on. interesting one. So on this day is a chap called Jean Picard. You know, I'm, you're thinking, that sounds familiar. Yeah, it does. Instead of Jean-Luc Picard, his name is Jean-Félix Picard. Ah, oui. Yeah, oui. And he is a French astronomer and and a priest, actually. A oh. very unassuming man. But he's the first person to accurately measure the circumference of the Earth in 1670. My God, that's a long time ago. It is a long time ago. So he's like, he basically, this guy was obsessed with being really meticulous and doing very accurate measurements. And that's what kind of got him this gig. 25 more times more accurate than his peer, Tycho Bray. It's just the great Tycho Bray. Oh, legend. Was it Tycho or his cousin that had the nose chopped off? No, no, Tycho. Yeah, Tycho. had his nose chopped oh, off. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Poor old chap. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> had a metal nose. Yeah, so, yeah, he wrote a book called Mergeur de la Terre, which, uh, as you'll know, is Measurement of the Earth. Of course. Published in 1671. So, yeah, just so you know how he did it, it's all about precision. So he was the first to attach a telescope that had cross, you know, crosshairs on it. Oh, so, you know, okay. you know, when you look through, yeah. things have got crosshairs. He was the first one to have that. And he attached it to a 38-inch quadrant, which is like a, a I guess, you know, like a protractor yes. that, where you've got a telescope attached to it. And so you can measure the angle of what, you know, that you're actually looking at, uh-huh. measure between two different uh, points. And he also had a sextant, which is very similar, except you've got two reflective points, so you can measure the angle between those two points. That's right. And, and that's six feet but he had little micrometer screw adjustments on there. So he was able to, ah. to get really super, super, super in on measuring the degree of latitude 
from the Paris Meridian and he used this kind of triangulation technique using 13 triangles that stretch from Paris to the clock tower of the Sourdon. Sweet relief. Yeah. So, yes, 110.46 kilometres for one degree of latitude is what his measurement came out with. And that gives you a terrestrial radius of 6,328.9 kilometres, which at the time was so unbelievably accurate that it was, twenty well, 24 times more accurate than the, the living legend of the day, Tycho Bray. So, he was a smart cookie, is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so he was, you know, exchanging letters with Tycho Bray, Isaac Newton, Huygens, and even his rival Cassini. And, uh, yeah, Cassini, I think, was a little bit jealous of this guy. But certainly, you know, it's it's he's not very famous, is he, Jean Bicard? Well, he bloody uh, should I, I, be. I, well, he should be, yeah, because then you listen to this. So Newton used Picard's value of the Earth radius for his yeah. theory of gravitation. That's pretty important. <laughs> Newton used Picard's work on this thing called mercurial phosphorescence that he kind of sort of discovered. And that led on to Newton's uh, study of light spectrums, which is pretty important. Oh, that really is, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, and then Picard used Huygens' pendulum clock to develop the standard method, of which we still use today, to measure right ascension of okay. stars yeah, and other objects. Picard, he observed the Jovian moons with Oli Roma, whose work went on to calculate the speed of light. <sighs> so, These so, are some heavy hitters, so, Matt. Yeah, so it's pretty amazing, isn't it? And not only while he was doing that, he's a bit like last week's. Um, last week's um, on this day was he was involved in hydraulics. He's a bit of a polymath, and is and he helped solve the problem of flowing water from ponds and fountains at Versailles. What? So, oh yeah, I'll have a, I'll have a go at that. Yeah, just have a stab and, at that. And really weirdly, while observing. Um, while observing Polaris, he noticed that it actually moved around. And uh, that actually is what's known as aberration, which we should probably go into on another podcast. It's pretty complicated. Mamma but mia. At the time, that was mistaken as parallax, which is a, a kind of similar phenomena. But the significance was only understood a century later. And essentially, it kind of proves that the sun is at the center of the solar system, that we're all revolving around the sun. So he's very close to sort of being like even more ridiculously of, of just something incredible. Isn't um, parallax a wrestling move? I, I, I believe it is. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, that parallax sounds like, it's, sounds like it's, it's what happens to you after a very rough <laughs> wrestling move. Yeah, that's I'm true, honest. yeah. I've broken my parallax. So what about, a, what about his crater, Matt? Well, do you know what? I've, what I've noticed, every time we have one of these on this day super famous astronomers or space person, they always have a crater named after them on the moon. And do you know what? Picard is no exception here. He, oh. There is a Picard crater. There is a Picard crater on the moon. Well, I can tell you, uh, Matt, that there's a very magnificent Franklin crater, but there's, there is a disappointing Russell crater. I don't know if you've noticed. No, no. I, I think you'll find it's uh, the, the Franklin oh. crater is a little bit is a little bit kind of low end, whereas the oh. Russell crater is it's beautiful kind of figure of eight affair. It's 
It's absolutely amazing. Yeah. Plus, of course, there isn't a Franklin crater on Mars, whereas there is a Russell crater on Mars as well. Just so you know. Yeah, you, they just haven't found it yet. <laughs> they haven't found Franklin. No. <laughs> That's good. I like it. Yeah. Like Maybe when the Rosalind Franklin lands, they will. Well, of course. Standard. Mm. Well, I'm. Standard. I think that Picard is incredible, and I'd like to tip my cap. I'm going to definitely tip my cap to him. Yeah. Do you know that Kness named their satellite after Picard? Ah, oh, sweet. Good work, Kness. And that was studying the sun, the shape of the sun, and how it kind of affects its irradiance and stuff like that. That sounds like an interesting mission. Really earlier is. This, uh, yeah, earlier. But here's a really interesting one. Obviously, Jean-Felix Picard sounds like he was an inspiration for Gene Rodenbury and his character Jean-Luc Picard, ah. right? But get this. A lot of people, uh, uh, well, there's a, some suggestion that, that he named it after twin brothers, Auguste Picard and Jean-Felix Picard, completely two separate people to Jean-Felix Picard that we're talking about because they're both Swiss scientists from the 20th century. No way. But but this Jean-Felix Picard actually has the right spelling, I-C-A-R-D. So I don't know why people think it is those two when when clearly it would seem that Jean-Felix Picard is a much more... you know, much more suitable fit. I'm going with that one. Definitely it fits better. Yeah, and he was clearly an absolute... He knew... You know, he knew people like Tycho Bray, Isaac Newton, Cassini and Huygens. I mean, what the hell? What a legendary it's, priest. Uh, yeah. Unhand Bang me. out. Priest. <laughs> yes. Just wow. passionate about precision. Good guy. Good dude, Incredible man. stuff. Jamie, did you read the Ars Technica article by Eric, the great Eric Berger? I haven't caught it yet. It's very good. It's a long conversation that Eric's obviously been having with Buzz. Buzz okay. Lightyear. <laughs> Buzz Aldrin. Well, you know, well, apparently, promo for the film. This, was it on the podcast that I learned this that that Buzz was going to change his name to Buzz Lightyear by Deepol? What? Yeah, serious. So. Yeah, I don't know what to say about that. No, no, he was actually going to have by Deepol add in Lightyear into his name. Wow. Okay. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah. do what you want, Buzz. You're a legend. <laughs> <laughs> so he, but Buzz thinks he's found a new and better way to get to the moon. Okay. Hit me with it. Yeah. So uh, I like the way actually that Eric Berger starts off the uh, this particular article because uh, he actually puts the credit to Trump. And I think, you know, we were talking about this when, you know, credit where credit's due, due even if the whoever you're giving credit to is an absolute lunatic. Hmm. But yes, it says, to its credit, the Trump administration has injected NASA with a sense of urgency by setting the 2024 landing goal. True story. True. Um, um, You know, whether it's achievable or not, at least there is something good about it. Uh, But Buzz isn't worried about the timeline. It doesn't seem to be the timeline that's annoying Buzz. It's the technically disappointing performance of the system. Okay. So... So he's moaning about that the Orion capsule's massive, the SLS is wasteful, the European service module is really underpowered. Uh, and basically all that means is that you're not able to get to the moon and back like the um, like the Saturn V could, you know, which is pretty disappointing 50 years later. And you That's still, right. You technically can't really do what you could do 50 years nah. ago. So obviously NASA have plugged the gap there by using the Lunar Gateway. 
and the Lunar Gateway, obviously, as we know, is this seven-day orbiting um, platform, essentially another space station, yes. that uh, in its seven-day orbit comes within 1,000 kilometers of the moon. Yes. Right? But um, it really is irking Buzz because Buzz realizes that really what, what you should do is have that particular space station near Earth, right? And one of the reasons is well, most of the energy you're doing is just to get into Earth orbit before you do anything else. Yes. So use that use that because there's plenty of vehicles at the moment that can get into low Earth orbit. You don't need the SLS to do that, right? Right. So it's basically saying, yeah, well, why don't you have this, this platform in Earth orbit and then have a space tug that does the Transway Orbit Rendezvous. Now, Ooh. according, yeah, and according to Buzz, Buzz, I was just about to say Buzz Lightyear again. According to Buzz, he's saying this tour plan may be the most important thing I've ever done in my life. Bear in mind what he's yeah. done in his life. Yes, that's pretty. That's uh, he's got. He's got. That's some, a bold one, got, isn't it? Yeah, it's a bold. But I love one. that. He's fighting for the yeah. next gen. Yeah, and actually, it it it. What seems like a complete vault fast, or like you saying, oh, we'll just have to rip up everything. Actually, it doesn't change everything because you you can still use the same propulsion system that Maxara are building. You can still use all the habitat modules. Um, and you might be able to do things like add extra modules to have like uh, a sort of commercial hotel for space travel. You can add an extra module for a sort of cheaper version of the ISS that commercial companies can use and all those kind of things yeah. as part of the deal. Um, but this space tug, yeah, uh, which I, I can't work out whether this space tug is initially going to be the Orion spacecraft. That's the only bit that I, I couldn't kind of get. But eventually, mm. yeah, you'd have this enormous vehicle that that can do these, uh, that can keep making this uh, rendezvous orbit between Earth and uh, the Moon, mm. picking up people from the various places and dropping them off in the various places to do that little journey, so that you're not wasting fuel and you've got these much better commercial rockets that are reusable and are already available. So yeah. There's the ULA uh, part of that would be something like the uh, United Launch Alliance. ACES, yeah, they are putting ACE back into space too. Oh, uh, copycats. Yeah. But the problem is, yeah, that, that kind of using, using like cryogenic fuels in space and sort of refueling everything is really, really difficult. But um, there's been some studies that say that if you had $250 million, you could uh, – get that capability in less than five years. Oof. Yeah, and, and actually, this the, the whole thing isn't really that new a concept. This was designed, very similar kind of concept to this, was designed by United Launch Alliance called the CIS-1000 program. Ooh, which was kind of taken, yeah, yeah, which which is worth looking at. It's a great some great videos on there if you want to kind of understand the system more. But the yeah, it was that was being taken very very seriously until the Constellation program came along and you got the great big SLS style rocket, etc. You know, basically, I think it was called at the time Apollo on steroids. <laughs> I like it. But but the thing about that is now it's Apollo on steroids that reduce your performance. Not very no. good. Is it? <laughs> no one wants their performance <laughs> reduced, Matt. No, no. 
Well, ultimately, a steroid will do that to you, James. Yeah. Um, so you should stop with your, you know, I know you go out to the gym and all the time and you're pumping yourself full of this stuff, but yeah. in the long term, Jamie, it's not going to be good. Yeah, but I'm here to leave a good looking corpse, die young, you know? <laughs> so, so anyway, so yeah, Aldrin's out promoting these, this totally reusable architecture. Well, fair play, Nodes buzz. in low earth orbit. Yeah. So I, I think, I think it looks really, really good and he's obviously passionate about it. Is it, is it feasible, though, that we can change course, that we can tack to this new course right now? Well, I guess it depends, doesn't it, on whether NASA are going to really listen to this. But it's Buzz Aldrin. Oh, exactly. I mean? so so got to listen. Yeah, he's got to be the most famous space person alive, hasn't he? So, yeah. You would have thought so. Someone else who's pretty famous, Matt, is Neil Armstrong. And you mm-hmm. went to see the new Armstrong film. I did. Annoyingly, I had a ticket for you, but you couldn't come, could you? I was flying to the Netherlands, unfortunately. But Matt, I'm very excited to know how was it? It was it was excellent. I went with Colin, yes, uh, the vice president of the British Debate Society, and, and and we absolutely we thoroughly enjoyed it. The bizarrest thing was Maggie Aldrin Pocock was sat next to me, even though because uh, she she was part of the. Uh, Q and A at the end of the film as well. Ah. Uh, that was that was filmed six days previous. So obviously, she decided to come to the Guildford Cinema and watch it. So she was sat next to me, and weirdly, my mate Jay's been working with her and said, "You've got to get her on the show. We got on so well, and she'll get on really well with you." So if if you're listening, Maggie, yeah, please please get in contact. We we need oh, to get you on the show. Please, Maggie. Yeah, yeah, it'd be great. You gotta um, do it. You gotta do. It. I, I I found the Armstrong film very very inspiring. I'd had, I'd had a terrible day, Jamie. I'd had an awful oh, day, yeah. and uh, I just yeah. I th- I th- I thought it was there was something really really magical about Neil Armstrong, something very sort of calming and obviously had some demons, but but yeah, it, who it, doesn't? It was really good. Buzz didn't come off very well in it, and oh. it, like it's bizarre. Um, he it's like he's not. It's not that he's not liked; he's just not loved. Do you know what I mean? He's obviously uh, a bit of a wine, <laughs> a bit of a wine-up merchant or something. But do you know what? Buzz is just like the rest of us. We're all humans, aren't we? Just trying to make we're our way just, through life, aren't we? We're all just trying to That's make trying our way to do, through man. this little ball of dust. That's it. And yeah, and you know, and Buzz has done some incredible things with his life, and and navigated some very extremely difficult things in his life as well. Exactly. They didn't. So, pr- they didn't. You know, set out to be perfect. No, you know, no, not like you, Jamie. Well, I know who that can that be. Your... <laughs> you know? So, yeah, Jamie. So many things have happened in the last like couple of hours. It's ridiculous. Well, where we've do we been start? Literally... Yeah, we've been adding notes in just like literally to the last second. Couple of beavers. But, yeah, I mean, I mean, the the one that just happened was Hayabusa two. Has landed on Ryugu, the, the actual touchdown. Touchdown. Uh, and yeah, so that was, and so it's going to grab some more rocks, which it did back in February. But this time, the rocks that it's going down to grab, remember it fired like a, a, a massive bullet into the, into the asteroid itself. Yeah. So it fired this huge bullet in, and that's, that's basically got loads of rubble from the center of the not from the center but inside the asteroid and now it's landing down to to sort of scoop up some of that stuff and what's exciting about that of course that's a glimpse 
into of its past. material. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Glimpse into material that's essentially untouched by space or geology for 4.5 billion years and could tell us some amazing things God, that's just about insane. the early solar system. Mm-hmm. Just off the back of asteroids, did you see that they they saw astronomers uh, have logged a ki- about a kilometre long asteroid that has the record for its quickness around the sun? Oh, no. Yeah, shortest year of any asteroid. Oh, I'll look out for that. Yeah, check it out. What's it called? Oh, I don't know. I'll get you the deets. You get the deets for next week. BT. Um, uh, bit of a shocker, this one. This one came up in my feed as well just a few oh, hours ago. Oh, you're going to mention Vega, aren't you? Yes. F- I knew that you were going to say that because of the tone of your voice went down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The 15th Vega launch, every single one has been successful so far. But two minutes in to the 15th Vega launch, unfortunately the second stage seems to have gone awry oh. and that's it it's it's game over for the whole thing and and yeah that that means that uh, united arab emirates have lost their falcon i1 oh which was a sun synchronous 1.2 ton satellite built by airbus uh, a, a military kind of uh, observ- earth observation satellite so that Ooh. that's gone so yeah that that is that's a bit of a shocker because it's been so reliable up until then, hundred percent reliable, in fact. So what a shame! Uh, yeah, that is a that's a bummer, isn't it for the for the Europeans there? Um, I hope they get that all back on track, and it was yes, a simple, good a luck. simple, a simple problem. Because yeah, obviously that could have some run on run on effects for the new Vega, and then on run on effects for the Ariane six. I know as a result. So, yeah, well, let's keep fingers crossed that it doesn't have too much of an impact on that. But even more amazing is is that Gersten Meyer and Bill Hill have both been demoted at NASA. Oh. Yeah. I mean, you cannot see it in any other way than that they've been demoted by Bridenstine. He sent them packing. Yeah, he said, in an effort to meet the challenge. In other words, it's like, yeah, you two guys, you're just not the right people for this job. Yeah. Effort to meet the challenge is very diplomatic, isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah. Do you know who takes over? Oh, I don't know. He's, this guy's got a great name. Kenneth Dwayne Socks Bower Socks. <laughs> so good <laughs> about to Socks. ask you why he's called Socks and then you told me his surname. Yeah, yeah. So Socks wow. is taking over. Kenneth no. Dwayne Bower socks. Yeah. No. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's a good name. That's I like a him already. Name. Yeah, not only that, he's he's been to space five times. Um, launched on STS seventy three at the age of thirty eight, making him the youngest person to command a space shuttle. Uh, and he flew on STS fifty sixty one, both as pilots, uh, on STS eighty two on the Hubble re- repair mission. And he went up on a space shuttle, STS-113, and came back down on a Soyuz for his last mission. So he's been there and done it. He's got some damn experience. Well, for space. And then he went to SpaceX and worked as the vice president of astronaut safety and mission assurance until 2011. But I don't really know what he's been doing since. It sounds like we should interview KDB as soon as possible. 
KDB. I think he's going to be quite busy now. He's the <laughs> no way. He's the head of no human, way near human busy space enough flight. to reject our interview, Matt. Surely, does he know that we're one of the top fifteen star companies <laughs> in the UK space sector? Uh, I wonder if he is aware of that. He better check the news because it's out there. He's probably more concerned with other things right now, Jamie. Don't get cross with him. Okay. All right. So tell me about SpaceX. What have they been up to? Well, it's all about the Starhopper, Matt. As you as you said last week when I was in Amsterdam, that I could have done with a Starhopper. Mm-hmm. You know, because I'm a bit of a jet setter, Matt, as you know. Big time. They're about to, next week, according to Elon, have their first untethered hop um, because they fixed their... Uh, the situation with their dodgy Raptor engine, the very powerful Raptor engine, and the issues have sort been sorted. And yeah, uh, it, was some, it was some kind of vibration problem, wasn't it? They should yeah, have got an acoustician right. like me in. That's well, the sort of thing I think. They still I could might. have done that. I could have. I could have. I could have been Elon Musk's rocket engineer if I'd have just stuck to acoustics. Oh. So he said. He said this, Matt. He said, "Exciting progress in Boca. Hopper almost ready to hover." Based on tonight's test, looks like 600 hertz Raptor vibration problem is fixed. Do you want to hear my impression? Oh, go on then. Yeah, because he did another tweet, didn't he? Yeah, he goes, We'll do Starship presentation a few weeks after Hopper hovers, so prob late July. If that timing works, free LG chips for all present. <laughs> that's, Wait, that's really uh, good, right? Okay. Uh, what is an LG chip, Matt? No, that's why I was trying to find out because because you or an LJ chip a, rather, sorry, an LJ chip. What is an LJ chip? I've been trying to work that out. It's I mean, is it, is really it a obvious, snack? and everyone's going to be or is it like going, something electrical? I don't know. LJ chips. I like to think present. it's just really good crisps. Yeah, maybe that's we it. We call maybe. them crisps, don't we? Here. Yeah, maybe maybe that's it. Maybe it's a, just a brand of crisps. Maybe you're saying Free Walkers chips, Free Walkers crisps for everyone present. I just don't know. Well, it's very exciting. I'll tell Let's you what know. else is Let's exciting, know. Matt. Uh, Virgin Orbit uh, carried out a successful launcher one drop test. Get in. So they flew up in their big old 747. And Cosmic they said girl. that the, the test was a success. The whole flight went incredibly well. The release was extremely smooth. And the rocket fell away nicely. Kelly Latimer there. Um Virgin Orbit's chief test pilot said in a statement after the flight. What do you think about that, Matt? I I think that's really exciting because, of course, it's one step closer to a Cornish launch. This is very exciting. Just down the road from my house. Just down the road. Yeah. But sticking with Virgin as well, actually, Virgin Galactic look like they're going to be the first publicly traded space tourism company. Ooh, okay. Yeah, some some massive... Should we buy some uh, shares? Yeah, we should do some. Uh, it's I think it's coming like Social Capital, Hedo Sophia Holdings Corp. Right, okay. <laughs> are going to invest eight hundred million dollars to acquire forty nine percent of Virgin Galactic, uh, Virgin Galactic, which should fund the the whole endeavor until it starts to break even and make a profit. Beautiful, that's good work of them. Anyway, I've got two little things that I wanted to just quickly. Bring to your attention. Go on. Little couple of Apollo gems. Obviously, yeah. we got we we can't not talk about Apollo. But no, there's a couple of there's a couple of things that I've learned about about one one from uh, Spaceflight magazine and one from the good old 
Discord channel. Go on then. But yes, a couple couple of apologems. Uh, in 1966, there was a, a 27 British scientists went to uh, KSC to uh, work on the ALSEP, the Apollo, Apollo Lunar Surface Experiment Package. Ooh. But that became that became just for the Apollo 11. It came the ESEP, the early Apollo surface experiment package. It was kind of simplified version. But one of the scientists was able, Keith Wright, who's a fellow of the BIS. He was able to sort of say, well, "Can seven of the team like sign something before he goes up?" So they were able to sign one of the brackets on the back of this experiment that went up with Apollo 11. Right. And so they signed it. Then the ink was removed because, of course, that's contamination and, you know, a bit of isopropyl alcohol and cleaned it off. But the scratches remain. And this guy, Keith, managed to draw his name, put UK and draw a tiny union flag as well. So on the moon, in Tranquility Base, there's a tiny little drawing of a UK flag. How cool is that? I love that. Yep. That is pretty awesome. But Incredible on a po- stuff. Where, where people were sneaking lots of these sort of things on. And the one that came via the Discord channel was one called Moon Museum. Have you seen that? Oh, yeah, I have. That's incredible. It's so funny. So, yeah, it's a little tiny wafer of a ceramic wafer that this artist, Forrest Frosty Myers, managed to get his friend to sneak onto Apollo 12. And, yes, it's got lots of different artists Uh well, six different artists drawing some stuff on, one of them being Andy Warhol. And Andy Warhol, his little thing is his initials that if you look at it in certain ways, looks like a looks like a rocket ship. But I should imagine someone like you, Jamie, very childish, will probably see it as a penis. Ah, oh, why would I do that, Matt? I, mean, I don't I'm, know. It's I'm probably the most mature friend you have. Actually, that's probably true. Which is probably Jamie- true, which says something about your other friends. Yeah, that is true. Jamie, as you were away in Amsterdam, yeah. I interviewed a very lovely chap called Jonathan Fetter Vorm. I know you did, and I was very jealous, namely because I got a lovely copy of his incredible book, Moonbound, Apollo 11 and the Dream of Spaceflight. And I didn't realise um, that it was a it was kind of like a graphic novel version. And it is one of the best things I've ever ever seen out of all the books we've been looking at and and i think it's the i think it's definitely the most original isn't it there's something really cool about it it's absolutely i mean i know that we say this a lot but it is mind-blowingly good please go out and check it out but i'd love for you to um love for you to listen on because jonathan's a bit of a legend isn't he what more do you need michael collins who I really want to make Astronaut of the Week next week, Jamie, so we'll do okay. a deep dive on Michael Collins. Sure. Um, not to be confused with Phil Collins or Michael Collins, the Irish guy. Correct. Um, yeah, he said, I know of no other book about Apollo 11 that is more enjoyable. That's a hell of a statement, isn't it? Well, that's all you need to know. There's a bit in this in this chat which he sent me later in, the, in an email he said, did you uh, hear the bit where his cat starts scratching at some of his artwork? And so he had to lunge to get her, sending his laptop sailing across the room. But he carried <laughs> on like a pro. Like the whole thing, he doesn't tell me what's happening. But you can, you can hear, you'll be, you should be able to hear it. And then he sent through his, um, his space songs. So do you, want to hear, oh, do, you want, do you want to know what his space I, songs are? I totally want to know. His space songs are Lemon Jelly Spacewalk. Nice. 
I love I do love that song, but I have to say Lemon Jelly at the Forum was the most boring gig I've ever been oh, to. Okay. But but that but that album's really good. Nico Case. Do you know this one? I wish I was the moon. I don't know. No. That's a good one. I'm I, it's a Add good one. That. I do know Joanna Newsom's waltz yes. of the 101st Lightborn. Oh, she's, she's a, brilliant. Yes. Absolutely amazing. So that's three good tracks, isn't it, to add to the playlist. Well, Shall we uh, shall we have a listen? Shall we have a listen? Ecoute. The Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space. We've received a copy of the book and it's such a fantastic looking book. And it's very different to the, some of the other books that we've been looking at over the last few weeks. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about it and what, what makes it so different? Well, I think the most the most salient feature is the fact that it's a comic book. I've been working on it for a few years now in anticipation of this big anniversary coming up for the Apollo 11 landing. Part of my research, I read a bunch of uh, background material. And one of the things that uh, kept kept jumping out at me was the, the plethora of visual resources that NASA had preserved. Um, there's just so much photo documentation from the stuff the astronauts took to the stuff, you know, behind the scenes when they're assembling the spacecraft. Uh, so it's kind of a goldmine for someone who does comics. Almost every angle of this story has some sort of visual reference for me to go from. So, uh, so yeah, I've, I've basically told the story of Apollo 11, the landing, uh, and the return, but, uh, most of the book is about the long, I'd say, deep history of the dream of going to the moon. And um, so uh, it's it's a lot of historical background. And uh, yeah, we cover a very wide swath. How do you start a graphic novel? Because I've never really spoke to a graphic novelist before. I mean, you, you do all the drawings and all the text and everything do else. It, yeah, do everything. You know, for, for this book... So I, I think in terms of graphic storytelling. So that's, that's, you know, sort of just where my mind goes to about how to figure out how to tell a story using images and words. And for me, the real germ of this book uh, happened when I was reading the Apollo 11 transcripts um, shortly after Neil and Buzz landed on the moon, you know, when they're um, – NASA has scheduled them to take a, uh, a nap, a uh, recovery period before they start preparing, preparing for their EVA. And I love that scene when the astronauts deviate from the schedule and they, you know, ping Houston on the radio and tell them that they're going to start preparing. They don't want to take the nap. They're going to start preparing now. Um, but when I first read that, I was struck by how, how utterly human that moment was. Of course, these two men who have gone the farthest of any men before don't want to take a nap. They want to go see this new world. And I, in my head, I just had this image of, of these two guys sitting in the you know, stark lunar light inside their lunar module, uh, arguing with the mission control about, about when nap time should be. And, and that kind of crystallized the larger challenge, the, the conflict between the human impulse to explore and the uh, the bureaucratic uh, engineering-based mindset that enabled that exploration, that the two were working in tandem to produce what happened on Apollo 11. Uh, what would you say were the strengths of the, of the kind of graphic novel format, particularly for, for, for telling the story of history? Because I noticed your previous books are 
have a historical bent as For well, sure. even though they're not space, rela- space related. For sure. Yeah. My first book was about the invention of the atomic bomb, Trinity. And my second battle lines was about the American civil war. Um, yeah, history has become sort of my, my MO for graphic storytelling. <laughs> and I think one of the real strengths of this medium is the ability to make pretty ambitious leaps of the imagination or leaps of storytelling. Cause you think about how the comic book page is set up, you know, each panel separated by usually separated by a gutter of white space. And when you're reading a comic book, your mind is already sort of in the mode where you are making leaps of the imagination from one frame to another. And I found that that's a particularly useful thing to transpose over into the world of history to be able to, uh, to make uh, big associative leaps and have the reader stick along and not, not feel overwhelmed. Um, and the other thing it- I think that the comics do really well is I, I sort of treat it like uh, collage. Like the page is a chance to assemble a lot of sources or a lot of visual reference, whether that's photographs or documents, portraits, and and I can arrange them in such a way that these these disparate pieces of information can kind of flow together. You can create your own sort of argument by putting images next to each other, which is a thing that's a lot harder to pull off in a prose book. The drawing aspect of it I find really fascinating because presumably it's exceedingly time consuming. <laughs> it, it's do do you do you uh, sketch the idea do you sketch out the storyboard first or you or do you just go for it? Well, it, it's I'm my process is pretty plotting. I think you actually if you talk to a lot of graphic novelists and they really are honest with about uh, with you about how much work and rework goes into it, it's a very um, meticulous process. There's a lot of going over the same material. I actually start with the words, uh, because I'm doing nonfiction. I want to make sure that the book is as accurate as possible and the argument flows. And so I sort of write a movie script as it were, where each panel is, Mm -hmm. I describe what's going to be in each panel. Um, and then I go back and once all the writing's done, start with very loose sketches, thumbnail sketches that are, you know, literally the size of my thumb. So I can just get quickie, quickly and dirtily, dirty uh, uh, impressions of what I'm going to do. And then from there, I do pencil sketches, and then I do I ink those pencil sketches, and then I put the word balloons in and the lettering and the coloring. And you know, it just becomes – it's kind of iterative. You just keep going over the material, constantly honing it, and then finally it all sort of comes together at the end. Wow, I mean, it sounds like it sounds like a, a real labor of love for the astronauts themselves. Um, do you do you sort of set aside time to sort of capture the essence of each of their characters as a sort of uh, piece, or, or or is that just as you're going through the novel itself, or do you actually sort of say this is how I'm going to draw Neil Armstrong and this is how I'm going to represent Buzz Aldrin, yeah, for example? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's this kind of tension between caricature and likeness. You know, you want to try to, when I was drawing these figures, because they keep, because they're sort of the main characters, um, it's a matter of trying to, trying to pare down, you know, Buzz Aldrin's face to a combination of hairline, cheekbones, chin, nose, and eyebrows. Like just get the, the details <laughs> that from a distance you can say, oh, that is Buzz. Um, I actually found, and, and Collins was, 
similarly, you know, he's got he's got very specific features in his nose and, and the way his eyes are shaped and spaced. Um, and those two those two people were actually very I thought they were a lot easier to draw. Armstrong is like somewhat like his personality is something of a cipher. He I found him very difficult to capture a likeness of. And so I, I ended up, I think, just sort of like, you know, doing my best. And then in the world of the comic book, once you sort of establish that this is what uh, Neil Armstrong looks like, then it as long as you're not like holding it up to a photo reference, I think people will kind of get mm. the point. But but to get to your other point, the yeah, I I was sort of reticent to go into the psychological aspects of these men I know a lot of books do that. A lot of stories do that. The first man did that. Um, I think there's definitely a curiosity about it from lay people about, you know, what, what did it take for these men to be able to do what they did? But the more that I read about it, the more the Apollo 11 program mission and the program writ large read to me a lot like very talented people doing a difficult job very well. And there was an element of professionalism that I thought was kind of kind of undercut by the attempt to psychologize everything. Like I think that there is a kind of separation between what these men were doing at work and what their lives at home were like. Uh, that separation breaks down once the mission is over and you have the long afterlife of what it's like to live as a person who's gone to the moon and then try to come back to earth. Um, so, so yeah. I, 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 you know, I had to do some character, some profile, some like quick capsule description of these characters, but I was really interested in, you know, saying these are their names, these are their roles. Now let's get to the story. Um, Cause I think that there's, there are, better opportunities to read about the psychological backgrounds of these these guys and that wasn't really what i was interested in right but do you think that in telling a story like that where you have characters that are obviously interacting in certain ways and doing certain things that 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 aspect of it is almost unavoidable that they 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 keep telling their own story and i think it, i think it is it's really obvious actually that that neil armstrong would be a hard character yeah. To, to to sort of capture via drawing because because he is he is kind of enigmatic I'm almost uh, to be honest I'm always quite surprised by photos of Neil Armstrong I never I can never quite <laughs> get what he looks yeah, like yeah uh, I know it sounds silly but it's like so but in telling the story presumably the the, the characters you you can't help but but let totally. some of that, that that character come through totally. did you did you find that yeah and you know that's one of the great the assets of having all the mission transcripts available that you can through their words and through their goofs, their jokes to each other. Um, that was a good way to characterize them. You know, just the, the banter of what they were doing on the mission, um, was it helped a lot. And then of course I drew from all of their memoirs, so, which were hmm. more composed and more revealing than necessarily like the the material that was coming out as publicity for apollo 11 so you know michael collins memoirs i it's one of my favorite books about space oh yeah well i was about to say i mean michael collins yeah is it catching the catching the fire yeah. or, or yeah he's he's Car uh, yeah carrying the fire so yeah he's that that book is often considered by many as as actually the greatest of all the the sort of astronaut astronaut books 
So was it? Was it? Did you meet Michael Collins when you when he did your foreword you know, for the book and and get involved? I didn't. I kept hoping that it would work out, but the, one of the one of the downsides of doing a book that comes out during the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11 <laughs> is that yeah. your main characters are unavailable. Um, oh, big time, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it was funny because so I started this, you know, full confession. I started this not knowing very much about space, and uh, not you not knowing more anything more about the Apollo 11 mission than the kind of basic thing I was taught in school. I didn't even know who Michael Collins was when I set out on this. And, uh, I used that sense of, I don't know, let's call it ignorance as a motivating factor for how I could tell this story in a way that was both, you know, expressed my own curiosity and my own sense of discovery and worked and worked as a way to try to introduce new audiences to this, to parts of the story that I might not have, might not have heard about. And, um, yeah, uh, Mike Collins turned out, like, started out as kind of a, uh, an unknown to me and then became my favorite astronaut that has ever lived. Um, he's a sort of a personal hero of mine now. So that, that, that well, one, that was one of the great benefits of doing this book. Are you a space fan now? Uh, did it, did it actually kind of ignite a, a passion for space? You know, I've always had an interest in space, but I would say it's been about, I've always had this attraction to the, uh, sublime aspects of space, the kind of vast, uh, impossible to wrap your head around aspects of it. And I think that doing research on this book helped focus that larger fascination into a fascination with the people who have the audacity to confront that vastness and think, oh, we could go there or we could send something there that I'd never made that bridge before, that there is something sublime about the humans who also go to space. Um, and that, that really came together when I was doing this book. Did you did you have any kind of revelation moments and and sort of sit back and go oh my god did did that really happen did you have any of those moments I was I think I was most shocked by the when I discovered the full extent to which the American space program relied on Nazi technology and Nazi talent I was I I knew that Werner von Braun was uh, you know, a, a, an important figure in America. And I knew that he had a dark past, but I didn't realize, uh, how just how direct dark, yeah. the line from the, you know, slave camps of Middlevirk to, um, white sands test range. Like the, it's, it's just a conveyor belt. Um, so that was pretty shocking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is there anything else? Is, is there anything more, uh, slightly more positive? Did you, did, was there anything in terms of the actual mission itself that you, <laughs> that you, and I've, I mean, I love it. I mean, we, we, we talk about Werner von Braun all the time and that connection because it, it, there is, it's quite unresolved, I think. Oh, yeah. It, it's, it's one of those things where it, it, people don't kind of like to talk about yeah, it too right. much. Just I rather mean, not. <laughs> yeah. My, my dad used to listen to the V2. But uh, uh, bombs go over the top of uh, over the top of his house, so it's it's quite crazy. funny. <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, absolutely terrifying and imagined. But um, um, yeah, so was was there anything in in the actual kind of mission itself? In the mission that, itself that, that, that was surprising. Um, mm -hmm. I was. I I don't think I was prepared for the amount the the extent to which the these guys had to work. I, I was 
you know, you think that astronauts are these, and it, the, the, you get the Tom Wolf impression in your head that these are just kind of like fighter jocks who are swinging from the hip. But once I started getting into the, you know, like the training logs for um, the simulation logs uh, the, in the months leading up to Apollo 11's launch, it, the the kind of daily grind that these had to go th- these guys had to go through and the the tension of work and family and the pressure of you know are they going to be able to pull this off that all that stuff was you know it's it's invisible to s- someone who's just casually into this story um, but it was it was pretty fascinating I it really humanized them as people who are just trying to do a job well. And, um, and I think that was kind of a, a, a helpful entry point into thinking about astronauts. Cause usually there's, they're cast in such, you know, golden light as these, as these kind of otherworldly figures. But, uh, it was fun to discover just how, how, uh, you know, they're just people doing, uh, doing a job and doing it well. Yeah, do you, I mean, do you cover that? I mean, talking about them just being people, do you cover the the time where they have to kind of adjust to normal life after doing something? Yeah, yeah. Just... In, an, in an epilogue, I, you know, I have a, there's a Armstrong quote about how he wishes that the uh, something to the fact that he wishes that the that the results of this had been more significant, and uh, you know, the kind of deflating feeling that followed. Apollo 11 and actually the Apollo program in general, the, the rather brief or quick defunding of it. Um, yeah, I treat a lot, we treat with that in my epilogue, the kind of, um, yeah, pathetic aftermath. There was a, I talk about a New York times, uh, reporter who did a kind of ad hoc informal poll in 19, I think it was 1971. And she called up a bunch of people all over America and, pulled them to you know, say, do you remember the name of the first man to walk on the moon? And most of the people that she talked to just two years after the mission couldn't remember Neil Armstrong's name. And that was a, that was sort of a shock to me <laughs> because, you know, we're far enough, it's far enough in hindsight that I think during the, during the eighties and nineties, and certainly now leading up to the anniversary, there's the mission and the Apollo program and at large has become we've it's become something bigger than it was in its immediate aftermath. The distance of uh, time and nostalgia and a sense that this was kind of a, a high point in some narrative of 20th century history. Um, it was interesting to see that that didn't that didn't start building it until the until the late 80s. Before then, it, the the astronauts themselves, the program had sort of fallen into obscurity. How do you think that plays out nowadays with with things like the, this new Artemis mission? And do you think in ten years' time or fifteen years' time you might be doing a graphic novel based on Artemis? Oh, that'd be cool. Um, we need to we need the fuel of the the enthusiasm that came before that that enthusiasm that has become sort of inflected by nostalgia. I do think that that helps us. Um, I would, I would much rather that be a motivating factor. The, the sense of like, what is the best that humans can do? I would rather that be a motivating factor f- for spurring space flight than, 
um, Elon Musk's kind of cryptic uh, sense of survivalism that like we need to, I mean, even if it's in the back of everyone's mind, I want the motivation mm. for our future, you know, our move to becoming a spacefaring species to be one of uh, hope, not one of desperation. Yeah, so, so sort of more like the Olympics and less like, I don't know, building a <laughs> seed bank or something. Yeah, sure. That sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I fully agree with that. Um, yeah, like the Olympics, but without the corruption. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, if, yeah. No uh, the Olympics in, in, the, in the best sense of the word of the Olympics. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, well, it's, it's, everything gets sullied in the end. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, is it is uh, it what sort of project are you thinking of working on next? Is it going to be space related, or are you thinking of doing something completely different? You know, I think I'm going to take a break from space. I uh, I was really excited to draw it, and then once I started drawing it, I realized that it's very difficult to illustrate <laughs> space. And maybe you know, if you were a better artist than I, but it's uh, <laughs> between the moon, which is was harder to draw than Neil Armstrong's face. And the the blackness of space, um, it's it presents some very particular challenges for you know composition. And I'm so used as an artist to relying on things like atmospheric perspective, mm. things that you sort of take for granted when you draw a picture of something that happens on Earth. Yeah, it just doesn't happen in space. So I think for my own sanity, I need to take a break from drawing stars. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I haven't figured out what I'm going to do next. I uh, sort of wait for wait for the project to fall in my lap or see, see if the spark hits me. Did, did you go back to any of the kind of old, uh, space graphic kind of novels, you know, the kind of Dan dares and the, uh, and the flash Gordons to kind of draw any inspiration of how to, I did, to, to draw space. I did a little bit. I was keeping it. Yeah. And you know, I, I was constantly keeping in my back of my mind, Jack Kirby, um, he did, you know, he did a lot of the, the Marvel illustrations, um, that during the golden age that we've become, you know, enamored with, uh, and he had a very, he had a particular way of drawing space that was, um, very hyperbolic and exciting and, and got a, got a really good taste of that kind of pulpy, um, sci-fi feel. And so some of my panels, there's this thing called Kirby crackle, uh, which is, I don't know how to describe it. So you sort of have to point it out, but once you see it, you can't unsee it. It's a, it was a way that he had of drawing space that used, it was just a bunch of dots, like black dots and then white stars on top of it. And it, it creates the effect that it seems like the whole, uh, the whole Vista of the universe is kind of throbbing. Um, so I definitely relied on that kind of stuff, but a lot of my pop cultural source materials, predate you know precedes the the rise of comic books a lot of the things that i was looking back to were written sources like jules verne or um even before that Cyrano de bergerac um and people who were talking about going to space long before there was even a like an understanding of the novel like johannes kepler he has a, a whole chapter devoted to his um dream of uh flying on the back of a demon to land on the moon and using that to postulate his uh, vision of how the universe works thank you very much for for coming onto the onto the podcast and it it really does look like an absolutely superb take on the apollo mission it's like i was thinking how 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 are people going to make this exciting you know mm -hmm. every 10 years we have a sort of slew of books yeah. but this really one this one really is 
very very different and uh, yeah i really can't i can't wait to, to to get stuck in well i hope you enjoy it thanks for giving me the chance to talk about it Oh, actually, before you oh, go, yeah. before you go, sure. <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to spring this one on you. We occasionally ask guests <laughs> what they're if they have a space. I, you sound like a cool guy, so <laughs> it's <laughs> they ask people if they have a particular space song that can go on our space song playlist that we that we keep. So a song that you know the obvious ones like uh, you know David yeah, sure, David sure, Bowie's sure. uh, Space Odyssey. <laughs> but is there one that, that 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 you have that's kind of like pretty obscure and and it's like one of your favorite bands that does a kind of space song. Oh, that's a good question. Can I get back to you on that, or do you need an answer on the you, spot? You, no, no. I, well, no. You can you can definitely email because me because like. I definitely <laughs> spend a lot of my time. You know, as I'm drawing, <clears throat> I'm just listening to music, and I spend a lot of time on this project coming up with playlists that would evoke the right mood for drawing space. So, let me go through my list and see if there's something that would be fun to. Oh wow! Yeah, that'd be cool. Is there, is <laughs> what sort of names did you give your playlist? Oh, it, really exciting names like <laughs> space playlist. <laughs> well, that's very similar to our title. <laughs> really creative. Yeah. Again, thanks very thanks very much for joining us. Okay, thanks a lot. The interplanetary podcast is alive. I really enjoyed that interview, Jamie. Absolutely brilliant, cool. and. Make sure you go out and get the book, Moonbound, out now. Jamie, I was going to do uh, Exoplanet of the Week, where I was going to talk about Wasp 1B. <laughs> I thought, because there's 4,000... Yeah, no, there's there's 4,000 exoplanets to get through. So uh, I was going to start a new, a whole new um, section so that by the time we're dead, we'll have done every single exoplanet. But maybe we'll do it for another day. Let's do it on another day. Mm-hmm. Beautiful stuff. Well, I will speak to you soon, Matt. Uh, have a good weekend, everybody. And um, be sure to check out our website. www.interplanetary.org.uk Don't forget to like and subscribe, particularly on iTunes. Very helpful. And check out Patreon as well if you, if you like the show. Jamie, it's a lovely day. Go get yourself some sun. And when the night comes, don't forget to look up at Jupiter and, and marvel in her beauty. Oh, thanks, Matt. I'm absolutely going to do that. You look after yourself, okay? Okie dokie. Bye, everyone. Bye, Spodcats. See you soon. See you soon, Mike. Bye. Bye.